which is the good news according to John and his perspective of how this played out. And so hopefully over the last, boy, it's been 13 weeks now, uh, you've had a chance to read through this gospel according to John and had a chance to allow this just to wash over you and for you to hear the message that John brings to us. And if you have not done so, that's really the point of this whole class, has been to invite you in to read the whole book start to finish, very first verse all the way through the end, that you, so that you would catch the very message that is meant to come across when John wrote this so many, so many years ago. No fair jumping in like we've done in Bible class, just picking one little theme here or one little theme there. That's not how this was intended to be read. When John wrote this, he intended for you to pick it up and for you to, uh, uh, on your own, either as a congregation, as a church, or on your own to read this all the way through. And then that brings us to the purpose of John here at the, uh, the end, which we'll read here in just a minute in John chapter 20. Uh, I do not have my, uh, my coffee shop partner today. Uh, Tim is, uh, is out for the weekend, and so I'll be teaching. So I invite you, uh, metaphorically, to come on in, sit down, and let's have a discussion today uh, about John. And after a while, we'll be in John 17, if you want to know which part of the book we'll drop into uh, but before we read the theme of John and get into our topic of today, uh, let me hear from you. Uh, was anyone able, since we sat down last time, to read through John again, to think a little more deeply about John? And if so, uh, what are you noticing? What, uh, what is coming out as you read through the gospel? Anybody willing to share? Yes, Mike. Yeah, mankind in general. Mike points out it's almost disappointing when you see that line, and that's at the end of chapter 2, isn't it, where it says Jesus did not entrust himself to mankind because he knew what was in human, humankind. Yeah, that's a powerful reflection. We talked, you remember, several weeks back about how that word entrust is the same word used by John for the word belief or faith. And so you have this paradox in John where it says we are called to put our faith, to entrust ourselves to Jesus, but he does not put his trust or his faith in mankind. This is meant to go the other direction. Yeah. Good catch. Anybody else? Well, I'm excited today to lead you into a part of John when if you read this through, start to finish, when you hit John 17, which we'll be in today, you're going to find yourself feeling the weight of a very holy moment because we're going to get to hear Jesus praying. But before we get there, let's read the purpose of John, which is in John chapter 20, and we read this each week because this is John's summary of the whole, the whole uh, uh, book. And John says there in John 20, 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Now, each week we've taken out of that theme, or excuse me, out of this theme statement or the purpose statement, we've taken individual themes and then gone back through the book to show where these would show up. The idea there is to give you a helicopter 30,000-foot tour. I guess you wouldn't go 30,000 foot in a helicopter tour, but one of those helicopter tours, <laughs> maybe 5,000 feet, 2,000 feet, yeah, where you get to see the lay of the land. But the idea is, if you did that in Alaska, took one of those helicopter tours, the whole idea is that you get to see things that you just can't quite see from the road. But, but the idea is that you go back, and then when you're on the road or you're on a trail or you're, you're walking through a part of Alaska, you have this image of what the whole land is like. And that's what you get when you uh, study John this way. We're just looking at little themes, things to point out along the way, so that when you are walking this trail through John, you'll say, oh, there it is. Uh, there's this amazing uh, example of life or this is what it means to believe, or this is what his name means. And we've gone through each of those themes. This week's theme is to uh, really lower the magnifying glass again over that very last phrase, that you may have life in his name. Remember, that's the word zoe. And what does it mean? What does it mean to have life into the age in his name? And to find that theme, we're going to go to John chapter 17. And now I'll invite you to flip... Uh, the Bible back to John 17 and here we're going to read what is called in my Bible and maybe your Bible too the high priestly prayer look at your Bible in John 17 does it say the high priestly prayer it's interesting that they call this the high priestly prayer this is actually the Lord's prayer now normally when you think of the Lord's prayer you think that we're going to go to uh, Matthew 6 or Luke 11, where Jesus taught the disciples to pray, you know, to say, Our Father in heaven, your name be made holy. That's what we tend to call the the Lord's Prayer. But that's more appropriately titled the Disciples' Prayer, because that's the prayer Jesus taught his disciples when they recognized he was praying and said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John taught his uh, disciples to pray. And Jesus says, Okay pray like this. And so he taught them how to pray. And so that, what we call the Lord's Prayer, really should be titled the Disciples' Prayer. But if you want to see the Lord's Prayer, you come to John 17. And in John 17, we get to hear Jesus wording a prayer. So I'd like you to imagine for just a minute that you you came to services today, and you picked up the the bulletin that has the order of worship and, and imagine what it would be like if you looked at the order of worship for Sunday service today and, and you saw who was going to lead singing. So Matt Higman is leading our singing today. Our message is going to be brought to us by Danny Elmore. And then what if your eye went all the way down to the end and for the closing prayer, instead of it saying Stephen Heffington, what if at the closing prayer it said the Lord Jesus? I want you to imagine for a minute what that would be like if it were Jesus himself who were on the schedule today, at the end of our service, when all comes together, that it's Jesus himself who would stand up, make his way to the front, stand behind the podium, and give a few closing announcements, a few final thoughts about what was coming, and then he bows his head. Actually, in this case, he raises his eyes to heaven, and he begins to word a prayer. What would that closing prayer be like. In a sense, that's what you're about to hear. We're going to read this prayer together. And what you're hearing here is Jesus. After chapters 14 through 16, you've heard all of his closing announcements. I'm about to depart this world. Here's what's coming. Here's what to expect. And now Jesus raises his eyes to heaven, and he words 
what is considered a farewell address prayer. It is a final closing prayer. And if you've read ahead, you know what's coming next and what he's preparing them to experience and to see in the next few chapters. But you get to hear this prayer. And what I'd like to do is to read this prayer and allow it to just sort of wave or wash over us and for us to hear what that was like for Jesus to word this entire prayer without pause, without comment. And then we'll talk about it afterwards. And that will be the remainder of the class is really our reflections on what do we see? What do we hear? What do we experience when we, uh, we sit in the presence of Jesus giving this prayer? But here's a few things to pay attention to. Uh, the first thing as we're reading through, keep your ears open and keep your eyes open for the fact that what you're listening to is, in fact, a high priestly prayer. So it's as if this is the same image that would come to mind for a Jewish person if you were standing there at the temple and a high priest is saying the prayer, holding the blood on that day of atonement before walking into the temple, into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle that blood onto the altar. That's what's about to happen. If you know what happens in the next few chapters of John, you're getting to hear the prayer of the high priest, you in the presence of the priest, as that high priest is about to walk into the very temple with his own blood into the Holy of Holies. And so what you're listening for is the high priestly prayer. The second thing is to uh, listen for what is on the heart of the Lord while he is praying. For this, your high priest, who is about to make atonement for your sins, what is on his heart and mind? Second, listen for whom Jesus prays. So this prayer is split up into three different sections. You're going to hear Jesus pray first for himself, and then he's going to pray for all the disciples that are there in the room with him, and then he's going to pray for those who will believe in him because of the work that the disciples will do. And guess who's included in that group? That's you. And so listen as Jesus prays first for himself, then for these disciples, and then brings you into his prayer. Pay attention to that and listen for <clears throat> what does Jesus pray for? What is it that he desires for himself? Second, how does he pray on behalf of the disciples? And then third, listen for Jesus' request on your behalf. What is it he really wants for you? Uh, number three, I think it is, uh, this prayer is part of a larger farewell discourse, and we talked about that. So listen for what Jesus is communicating about the work that he is about to do. Uh, number four, listen for repeated words, phrases, or themes. Anytime that you hear an extended reading of Scripture, uh, it's really important to either with a pencil in hand or just in your mind, uh, catch those words or phrases that get repeated multiple times because that's usually your hint that here is the point or here is what to pay attention to. So as you listen to the prayer, listen for common words and phrases. And then finally, uh, at some point before class is over, I'm going to ask this question. What would it mean today if this prayer were fully answered in our day and time. All right. So let's take a moment to read this prayer of Jesus. John 17. <clears throat> so again, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's all the words that preceded this chapter, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they remain in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now... I am coming to you, and these things that I speak in the world, or excuse me, I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. In truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they, they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, may be in them, and I in them. And as you turn the page, you recognize why this is such a holy, precious moment. As you hear Jesus word this prayer in the presence of those disciples, 
uh, I'm really curious to hear where your mind went. What caught your eye? And what did you notice about this, about this prayer? Let's spend a few minutes just talking about what did we see? What did we find? What stands out to you in this prayer? So this is a good point. The, the, the comment is seeing maybe for the first time or just seeing it for the first time in this particular way that Jesus is saying, give me back this glory that I had with you beforehand. But he's also saying, I have given you glory. Is that what you're, to the to the disciples? Yeah. And then even to the end, to those who would believe. We get this. Did you notice that word glory showing up? Uh, quite a bit. What does the word glory mean? Do you know? Like when you think of, it, when we just use that term in English, what, is, what does it mean when we say glory? So good. So sometimes the word glory could mean praise. So saying something that is honoring of another person. Yeah, good. What else can glory mean? What well, comes to mind when you think of the word glory? So the word power? Yeah. For some reason, what popped in my head is when we call the flag old glory. What do we mean by glory there? I probably should have thought of the answer to that before I threw out the question, but I, that's what popped in my head was uh, old glory. But we mean something there more than just Pray. We're praising it. We're recognizing there's a power behind the symbol. Yeah, kind of bring. Ah. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. The glory days are our best days. Yeah, good. So I think we can start pulling these things together. The idea of praise, something that is powerful, significant, and the best is glorious. If something is glorious, oh, oh yeah, what does glorious mean? If I say, what a glorious sunset, you know, or if you see the northern lights, what a glorious sight. What do I mean by glorious? It's magnificent. It's worthy of my attention, yeah. Yes. Ah, splendor, yeah which has its own connotations, but you're saying glory, it brings to mind this idea of, and I'm going to throw one of the connotations in there, splendor as in big. It catches my attention uh, for a good reason. Uh, it is worthy of, of attention yeah, in and of itself. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 
Wow, and that's yeah, that's such a powerful image because it, at its basic, the word glory, and the comment here is the word glory has to do with something really shiny. <laughs> you know, it's it, but th- that's what we see with Moses. He spends time with God, and suddenly his face is showing. He had to put a veil over his face. There was so much glory, uh, and then that also happens, as you say, with Jesus. That Jesus is when he is glorified. There's almost it's. I know this is base. I don't mean it to sound that way, but it's just. It's like a spotlight, you know, and that's the word glory has that uh, connotation. Yes. Uh, Oh, that's right. And he mentions that in the prayer. Did you catch that? That part of what glorifies God is Jesus doing his work, which is giving you eternal life, and then you living that out is what brings glory back to God. Did you catch that link here? Uh, I was also thinking of, uh, you know, the Mount Transfiguration. There, Jesus is glorified. Suddenly, he's really shiny, and he's staying there with Elijah and Moses, and they're having this conversation, and Peter says, let's build three tabernacles, you know, and there's a whole conversation. But do you remember what what, uh, the voice said there? So a voice comes from heaven, and it says to Peter and the others, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You also heard that same phrase at his baptism. And you remember at the baptism, Jesus is baptized, the dove comes down, and the people hear a voice. And what did the voice say? This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Do you know what the word glory actually means in Greek? Doxa is what it comes from. And in just your everyday Greek, if you were in the marketplace and just talking to people, and you use this word doxa or doxa, it just meant opinion. I might ask you, hey, what's your opinion of this or that? You know, it could be a political opinion. could be your opinion about what to buy at the store. It could be your opinion of anything. And just your general opinion is the word doxa. Well, that word is what was used to translate the Old Testament words for what would be best described as God's good opinion uh, of something is, I'm trying to search for the word now, kadoba, kadoba, no, and that's the place you go for your Mexican stuff. Anyway, the Old Testament word, kadosh, uh, <laughs> no, that was a different word. It'll come to me in just a second. But the point is that in, uh, in the Greek-speaking world, when they tried to find a word for this incredibly good opinion of God, they reached for this word that was just opinion. And then over time, it became associated, especially in the New Testament and among Christians, this word glory became associated with good opinion. So a really good opinion of something would be this idea of glory. And then what you end up seeing, the way John is using this, is imagine what would it be like Well, at the transfiguration, when God says, I am well pleased, he is saying, I have a really good opinion (laughs) of this guy. Imagine if God said of you, I have a really good opinion. Fill in your name. Can you imagine what that would feel like, what that would be like? To know that in the mind of the eternal creator of the entire universe when you come to mind he has a good opinion that's the closest we can get to what the word glory really means 
And so when Jesus says, you have given me glory, you have given me this honoring, incredible, good opinion of bearing your name, and now I want that to be a part of what the disciples have, and he's passing it on to them. Does that help make that word jump out? Uh, I may just leave that, because we could spend our whole time talking about glory, but that's an important thing to catch, exactly as you said, and thanks for bringing that out first, that a big part of this prayer is Jesus asking that a glory be restored. I said that was it. We'll get back to this in a minute. But a real big part of the prayer is some of that glory has been relinquished or lost or needs to be given back. And so he's praying that that be restored to this really beautiful, amazing moment of splendor and magnificence and meaning and power. And Jesus is saying, take me back to the glory days before the world began. Wow, what a powerful thought. Okay, I got off on the sermon part there. What else stood out to you in the prayer? <laughs> Danny. And so, as Danny says, one of the most powerful passages you have in any of Scripture that talks about the unity to which you and I are called is right here in this prayer. And let's talk about that for just a minute, too. Because on one level, it's easy to say, well, he wants us to be unified as his body, as his church, as believers. But there's always a risk of thinking that what he's praying for is that we all agree with each other. You know, that we all have the same opinions, uh, that we are kind to each other, that we don't cause splits and divisions. But there's, there's a sense at which you hear this prayer, you, you catch Jesus is praying. He's not dismissing that. He's saying it's that, but something so much more. What does it mean for something to be one? When you hear that term one, what does that mean? It's singular. It's a good brainstorming word. Let's come up with all the words we can for the word one. (laughs) You know what one means, right? I mean, everybody knows. Yeah, mathematically, one can mean... What's that? Yeah, without division... So that's, a, that's another category. So one can mean just one item. And then without division can mean one group, one family, one collection, and without it being divided. If I had with me a $2 bill, how many dollars do I have? Well, I have $2, but how many dollar bills do I have? I have one. And, and if I tear that in half, is it worth anything? 
No, it's only worth something when it is one. So you can't have this idea of more than one being one in a unified, in a unified sense. Yes. Ah. Yeah. And so maybe that's what Jesus is alluding to here is a prayer. And he specifically prays to God. And that's really a great example of that. Is he's praying, may they be indivisible. Now, did you catch how he defines one in the prayer? And I'll have it up here on the screen. Verse 21. How does he define what it means to be one? So solidarity, is that how he defines it here? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes, but, but how does he... He and his father have solidarity. And then what's he saying about us? And is he saying with each other that you and I are one with each other the way that he and the Father are one? We should be that tight-knit? Or is he saying something else? You almost have to look closely at the passage. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, he's saying it's all together here. But what I want you to catch and make sure you don't miss in this prayer is how he says the definition of oneness that I'm praying for is that you be, look at this phrase, that they also may be in us. So the oneness that we have, the unity, the solidarity we have with each other, that's secondary. That's what happens when Jesus' prayer is answered and you and I as believers are made one in this relationship between God and the Son, or the Father and the Son, and you are enwrapped into that relationship. That's what leads to people like you and me laying down our life for each other and coming together in a common worship is because we are so focused on this relationship with him that he changes us. And, and so it's important to catch that what Jesus is praying for here is not institutional unity. But what he is praying for is absolutely visible unity. In other words, when you have a relationship and are invited into this relationship with the Father, the same relationship that Jesus has with the Father, and you become a part of that, that becomes visible to the whole world. And when you and I are called as his believers into this this group of the called, what we call church, the way we behave, the way we live, the way we treat one another as well as our neighbors is so visible to the world, and that's what Jesus is praying for here, is that our relationship would result in everyone in the culture in which we live seeing something. And what is it that they are to see? Did you catch that in his prayer? What is it Jesus is really praying for here? 
that we be one, so that the world that's exactly what it says it's that your life is meant to be a walking living billboard advertisement that Jesus is the one sent by God to make the world right again he's it he is the solution and it's in seeing what he has done through you both the singular you but also the collective you that the world sees that. And that's that powerful part. Again, a total other sermon on this word one here goes so deep and broad. Well, next time you read through the prayer, I hope that catches your eye, that Jesus is inviting you into a oneness that is beautiful and deep and eternal. Other, other ideas, other things catch your eye. Change the context of the word world. Tell me what you mean by that. And that's, a, that's really a great catch, is that the word world seems to be used in different ways throughout the passage. And we do this in English all the time. If I said, uh, in fact, my, my father-in-law really likes a, a joke if, if uh, he's been out hunting. And I say, hey, where you been? He'll say, I've been out standing in my field. Well, what does he mean by the word field? You hear the play on words. He's been out in a field. A field could mean a place where you go and hunt the migratory birds flying overhead. A field could mean... A line of work. That's my career. That's my field. A field could be a place where guys get out there, or women too, and play soccer or football or baseball. It could be a sports field. My point is the word field is going to be defined by the context. And that's the same thing you see in this prayer. But what you see throughout John is that this word world has these layers of meaning. The world is the cosmos, which Christ created. Through him all things were made, we're told in John 1. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And that's what he's referring to here when he says, before the foundation of the world, which brings together this whole cosmos. But then we also hear, like in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There he's talking about people and the, the people that make up the culture of the world. And so good catch, that word world can, needs to be defined by its context. Other things that stand out.
They are not of this world. I'm not asking you that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them while they're in the world. And then, good, that's a good, a good illustration here of how he's given their word, which I thought you were going to go with the word word there too. Did you notice how many times he uses the word word in the prayer? And what you catch, I'll just give the overarching statement here when you're reading through this prayer, recognize John is using the word logos through much of this. Now, there's one place where he uses actually the word spoken word, but in most, in most of the prayer, he's wanting you to have in mind that Jesus, the one saying this prayer, is the word. You know, that's how the whole book began. In the beginning was the word, and he's also speaking the word. And then he's passed this word on to the disciples who, as Danny says, are going to be the ones passing it on to others, which then leads to belief, which then leads to the whole reason John wrote the book is so that you would have life in his name. Did you catch in here in the prayer where Jesus prays for you to have eternal life? Let's go back to the beginning of the prayer here. Jesus knows what's about to come. He asks that he be glorified in all its connotations of that meaning. Since you have given him, or he says, glorify the Son, the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. There's another word for world, but he doesn't use the word world here. It's all living flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. What is the definition of eternal life? Yeah, is it? Look at the, the prayer here. Is the definition of eternal life a duration of time? And if not, what, what is the definition of eternal life in Jesus' prayer? What is that? Knowledge of God. Did you catch that? Here's the one place in John where you're actually given the definition of eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now the other word that stands out there that you have to define is what does the word know mean? What does it mean to know somebody? Yeah, to know, to know is to have information without a shadow of a doubt. That's to know something. So if I apply that to a person, if I said, um, do you know who the president is right now? Do you guys know who the president is? I'm assuming most of you do. Okay, you do. Good. Yeah. Uh, how many of you know Joe Biden? One does. Yeah. So... You see, how did I use the word know there differently? And one, it's a knowledge of, meaning just information about. The other is a question, do you have a relationship with? And that was our bell, meaning we've got a shortened time. But I want you to catch this point, that 
in this prayer, when Jesus says that eternal life is defined by knowing the only true God, the word know there is in this scriptural context of actually having a relationship with God. That is eternal life. And this is the rewind button. It just, all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1, when God in the garden creates human beings and he, he creates them in his image. And he walks with him. And unashamed, there are human beings naked walking through this garden. But they are unashamed in the presence of God. And then you'll see, after our uh, course on John, we're going to be going through 1 John. And you'll see at the end of the arc of the story, if you turn to 1 John, towards the end of your New Testament, we're told there will be a time again when you, as a child of God, will, will finally know what it's like to be made right again. He said, what we are is not yet known, but what we, or what we will be is not yet known, but one day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And right before that, John says, therefore, you can stand before God unashamed at his coming. This idea that we are be, being made right again to be in his presence and that is the definition of eternal life. It's not just a, a duration of time. The reward is being in the presence of the creator of the entire universe, unashamed. And that's what Jesus invites you back to. Because we're close on the end of time, can I show you towards the end of the prayer where that circles back? And Jesus here at the end says, Father, in verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want them to be with me to see the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then he invites us in. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me and then his final prayer, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Do you know what that phrase means if I say, uh, before you were a twinkle in your father's eye, such and such happened? You know, sometimes we'll say that. And what we mean is, before you existed, something was going on that very much influenced your existence. And if I use that phrase, uh, you know, what should come to mind is that there was a time when your mother and father expressed their love for each other and you came into existence. And I know many of you may or may not have a good relationship with your parents, but can you imagine being able to rewind back to a time when there was this perfect time of love and commitment and it was because of that moment that you came into existence. Can you imagine that? I don't want to go too far with the metaphor, but that's sort of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I want you to come and experience the glory and being in the presence of God back when you were just a twinkle in your heavenly Father's eye. That's what I want for you is for you to come and experience the glory and the love with which the Father and the Son had before the foundation of the world. Do you hear what Jesus is praying for? Before he walks into that true temple, the heavenly one, 
with his blood and lays down his life for the sins of the world, his prayer is that all of this would lead to you and your neighbors and your culture having this incredible hope that one day we would be able to be in the presence of God, the Father and the Son, and experience that glory and that love that led, in the first place, to your existence. Final thought is this. God doesn't want you as a mere possession. God wants you in his presence in this relationship. And what you're about to read in the rest of John is the extent to which God will go in order to bring you into his presence. So for the next few weeks, we will go into uh, the death, burial, and the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus. I hope before next week that you'll take a chance to read through John first to the end, and then when you hit this prayer, you'll take a moment, pause, and allow yourself to enter into that holy moment when Jesus is praying. And with that in mind, let's prepare ourselves now to, to worship him. Thank you.